You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, we're catching up on the latest regarding accounting for stock warrants with Adam and Julie. As you'll hear in this episode, the nuances are plentiful. Join us as we navigate the guidance, including understanding classification, measurement, and recognition of warrant contracts and how to account for them in common debt and equity financing transactions. I hope you enjoyed the complexities of this conversation as much as I did. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, the newest member of the Accounting Matters podcast team and Embark's resident Tampa market president. I'm here joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. On this week's episode, we'll be pivoting from our previous discussion on Alteryx and diving deep into the world of stock warrants and the accounting associated with Embark's very own Julie Avalanet, a senior manager in Embark's National Quality Group. Adam, Julie, thank you for joining us. Yeah, good to be here. You bet. Back every week. Wonderful. <laughs> Well, I know we've got a lot to dive into this week, so let's just jump right into the material. So for our listeners who probably aren't familiar with, can you first start explaining exactly what is a stock warrant conceptually? Yeah, I'll take that one. So a a stock warrant basically is an equity contract. So it's it's an equity contract that's between the company and the holder of that equity contract, which gives that holder basically the right um, but not the obligation to buy the company's shares. And that's usually at a specified agreed upon price. Um, and it usually has to occur before a certain date. Um, in practice, you'll hear people refer to warrants, um, a, you know, using a bunch of other like names for them, such as like an equity linked instrument um, is a fancier way of saying a warrant contract or a purchase call option is another way. Okay, I think that makes sense, but why would a company even issue warrant? And what are some of the common motives uh, for a company to issue these to? I guess it's a, their employees that would be that these would be issued to. Who exactly are we issuing these warrants to as well? Yeah, it, it could be employees. I mean, there's a there's a whole host of reasons why a company might want to um, issue warrants, um, and we can talk about some of the more popular ones. But generally, warrants are issued uh, probably most commonly to investors. They're used as like a a tool or a technique to raise capital. Um, So a lot of times you'll see newer like startup companies or high growth companies, they'll they'll provide warrants to their investors. And that's really just kind of like a sweetener to get people excited about investing in that company. Um, And alternatively, you'll also see warrants sometimes bundled together with other transactions. So a lot of times when a company maybe takes out a a debt instrument or issues debt rather, you know, they may issue warrants to the lenders as well as just a way to kind of sweeten that deal or use it as a, as a technique to maybe obtain a lower interest rate. So there can be a variety of reasons why a company um, might issue warrants. And then, like you said, you know, less common, I would say, but um, you could issue warrants to employees. And, you know, that could be viewed as just a way to like retain employees or maybe used as a recruitment tactic if you're trying to bring in like certain talent to the, to the organization. Okay. So now what I'm hearing you say sounds very similar to stock options. And 
you know, since we're here talking about warrants today and not stock yep. options, I imagine that there's a key difference between the two. Help me understand how I would view stock options versus stock warrants. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think a lot of times some when when you think about the, <clears throat> the economics or the structure of the, the equity contract, it does read a lot like a stock option. One of the big differences, though, that you really have to think about when you're trying to you know ascertain whether you've got a contract that's under the stock um, you know stock compensation guidance in 718 or elsewhere is really trying to understand what the warrant was issued for. So in order for uh, an equity link type instrument to be considered like a share based compensation arrangement, it has to be issued in exchange for something. So generally, it's in exchange for employee services. If it's issued to an employee, um, you can also have share-based arrangements under 718 that are issued to non-employees, and that's usually in exchange for non-employee services, but you could also get, you know, goods good as, as well from those non-employees. So you're obtaining something along those lines, either a good or a service. Um, when it comes to warrants, you're not. So it's, it's generally, uh, like I said, it's an investment technique to entice investors. It's used as a capital or fundraising parameter to try to entice, um, you know, certain types of fundraising. So there's, there's, there's differences in that regard. A couple other differences could be around the actual like terms of the arrangement itself. So generally stock options are going to be issued with an exercise price that's, you know, at or around the fair value of the underlying share that the contract will settle in. Warrants don't have to be, you know, sometimes you could have exercise prices that are um, what we call out of the money. So it's higher than what the fair value of the share might be worth, or it could also be what we call in the money where um, the exercise price is much lower than the fair value of the share. So sometimes you'll hear people refer to instruments such as penny warrants, where it costs as little as a penny actually to exercise that warrant. So that's another difference you could see. Um, you know, warrants generally have longer terms than stock option contracts. So, you know, like I said, there, there's a few things there that can definitely vary. And generally, a lot of the, the differences in terms and conditions that are embedded in stock options are, are done so in order to obtain favorable tax treatments for employees or employers. So there are, there are other provisions in there that will differ between stock options and warrants, but we won't uh, spend all day deciphering the tax code. Okay. So I, I think that's helpful. And again, not yeah, not diving too deep into taxes because that's a whole different conversation that we'll have. Are there any other uh, things or any other types of warrants that we need to be aware of? Yeah. So you, like I said, your most common warrant is kind of that purchased call option where you basically can you know, the holder can call on the company when they pay the exercise price to give them, you know, a share of whatever the contract's supposed to settle into. But there are other types of warrant contracts that are out there that, um, you know, people should be aware of. So there's a concept of a puttable warrant um, that can be fairly common. And a puttable warrant is basically an instrument that exercises much like a traditional warrant where they could exercise the warrant and receive the share. Um, but it also has an option, so a put option attached with it as well, where the holder could more or less, instead of exercising the warrant and receiving shares, they could exchange that warrant contract and the company would actually have to pay them cash for it. So they can put that contract back to the company for cash. And so that can cause some accounting implications um, just based on the provisions of that put option. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, another arrangement you'll hear about is People refer to this this type of arrangement as a warrant, but it, in essence, it you know generally isn't a true warrant. It's when you are 
um, given a contract that allows you to participate in a future equity offering. So a lot of times someone, you know, an investor, let's say a preferred preferred stockholder, for example, um, you know, they might buy an investment in preferred stock, but embedded in that agreement is the ability for them to participate in a future equity offering. And so a lot of people are like, well, that sounds much like a warrant contract because they can basically buy equity shares in the future. Um, but usually these, these types of contracts don't qualify as warrants because, you know, although it allows them to buy equity in the next round of financing, and it's usually at the same price that other investors would be offered equity in that financing arrangement, because the terms of that arrangement, they haven't been solidified, uh, they don't actually constitute a warrant contract. So there's really no accounting to do for that one, even though people will like colloquially refer to them as a warrant. Um, and then the only other thing I'd probably keep in mind is that um, warrants can be, you know, what we refer to in accounting world as a freestanding instrument, but it could also be an instrument that's embedded in another contract. And so depending on the, uh, the outcome of that assessment on whether the warrant contract is truly freestanding or not can also drive some of the accounting challenges. Okay, so, so hold that thought, because I definitely want to explore the freestanding embedded warrants more. But before we do that, we just discussed that warrant option contracts often have certain characteristics. Julie, can you break down what those usually make up for a warrant? Sure. So there's really four key components of a warrant. The first will be the strike or the exercise price. And this is the price that the warrant holder will purchase or sell shares of stock. And Adam sort of mentioned this earlier, but the exercise price can be out of the money, which means it's greater than the fair value of the underlying share. Um, it could be in the money, which means that it's less than the fair value of the underlying share, or it can be considered at the money. So it's equal to the fair value of the underlying share at issuance. Um, another component is the expiration date. This is the last day that the warrant can be exercised. So either you use it or you lose it. Um, a third component is the warrant price. This is the premium for purchasing the warrant unless the warrant is issued as part of another transaction like a debt issuance. So in that case, the bondholder or the company issuing the warrant is offered a lower interest rate. Um, the fourth component that we'll talk about is the warrant shares. So this is the number of shares that the warrant holder can purchase or sell when exercising the warrant. Now, beyond these four components, there might be other features or provisions that can change the accounting treatment of the warrant. So it's vital to fully understand what all is included in the contract and make sure you have a good idea of, of how they interact with each other. Okay, so great segue, Julie. Let's talk a little bit more about those features and those provisions. What are some of the more common ones that we might come across? Yeah, so we'll start with the one Adam previously mentioned, potable warrants. Um, those often create a conditional obligation for the issuer to repurchase the instrument for cash, which will then put it in the scope of ASC 480 and therefore require it to be classified as a liability. Um, another provision could include warrant contracts that are settled into underlying shares that are redeemable. And I want to point out here that whether or not those shares are mandatorily redeemable can impact the accounting for that warrant. So for example, let's say you have a warrant for mandatorily redeemable shares that would conditionally obligate an issuer to ultimately transfer assets. 
in this case, the obligation is conditioned only on the warrants being exercised because the shares will be redeemed. So the warrant contract in this case would be a liability under ASC 480. Um, some other key provisions to keep in mind relate to contingent exercise provisions and settlement features of the contract. Uh, we'll talk about contingent exercise provisions first. It can take many different forms. Um, but some examples might include things such as an exercise that is dependent on the occurrence of an IPO or change in control, or maybe the exercise is dependent on the achievement of a certain revenue or EBITDA threshold. Um, as an issuer, you should also understand what kind of settlement provisions are included in the instrument, um, including any provisions that may adjust how the contract is settled. So you really need to consider all potential settlement outcomes, regardless of their likelihood. And I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more, but um, settlement features must be evaluated for a couple different things. So you'll want to assess it for uh, whether a warrant meets the definition of a derivative, whether a warrant is considered indexed to the entity's own stock, and also whether a warrant meets the additional criteria for equity classification. How do liquidation provisions in a contract impact the accounting for warrants? Yep, it's a good question. Uh, the liquidation provisions can impact the accounting and the classification of warrants. For example, I just mentioned that a mandatorily redeemable warrant is in scope of ASC 480 and therefore would be classified as a liability. However, if that instrument is redeemable only upon an ordinary liquidation or termination of the issuer, then it's actually not included within the definition of mandatorily redeemable. Um, this is in contrast to a deemed liquidation event, which is viewed as a redemption feature that would need to be evaluated. Okay, so Julie, my head is spinning just a little bit, but I imagine that you've helped a client navigate some of these complexities a time or two. What's your best advice for those who may have a hard time wrapping their head around, like myself, the nitty gritty terms and features of a stock warrant? So it's very important to know the details of each feature and truly understand how they interact with each other. I would say to develop that relationship with your attorney and those who are involved in drafting the terms and conditions of the agreement. A lot of these agreements are written in legalese and you want to make sure that you interpret what they put in the agreement accurately. Interaction of all of those features and provisions of a warrant can be quite complex and make it difficult to assess, but your attorneys are really your best bet in trying to understand how they meant for the interaction to work and their intent behind the terms and conditions that they specifically included in the agreement. I love it. An attorney is your best friend. That is great <laughs> advice, Julie. That's what I'm going to walk away with here. But to lean and to lean onto those experts when you can. Now, Adam, let's go back to freestanding versus embedded warrants. Can you sure. first Explain the difference between these two types of warrants and how it impacts the accounting treatment. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, a warrant contract can be embedded in a host instrument. So if you think about like a convertible debt instrument or a preferred stock instrument, it may also include like a bundled warrant with that transaction. Um, there can also be circumstances where a warrant contract is just issued separately on its own it's as its own kind of equity lead component. Um, the Importance here is to distinguish whether it is freestanding or embedded because the guidance in ASC 480, which we've mentioned a couple of times on this conversation already, uh, that only applies to freestanding instruments. If you have an embedded instrument in a host contract, you don't have to worry about whether or not 480 applies 
Um, it has different criteria for recognition and measurement. So it's important to make sure you're kind of in the right set of the, the guidance and the framework to follow um, by evaluating whether or not you have a freestanding or embedded warrant. Actually, how does an issuer make this determination? Where do they start? Yeah, so obviously when you've got to make the determination, there's going to be some judgment applied. So before you even start kind of navigating the accounting guidance, you know, the first step is obviously understanding all the substantive terms and conditions of the warrant contract, because that's really going to drive um, the outcome of whether you've got a freestanding or embedded warrant. <clears throat> GAP does provide some, you know, they provide a definition really of what a freestanding, you know, financial instrument is. And basically there's two conditions that either can be met. And if either of these conditions are met, then the instrument is considered freestanding. So the first condition is that you've got um, an instrument that is entered into separately and apart from the entity's other financial instruments or equity transactions, which makes sense because, you know, basically if you enter into a warrant contract on its own, there's no other transactions being entered into around the same time or with the same counterparty, you know, clearly you've probably just got a freestanding warrant. More commonly, you'll have a freestanding instrument um, in circumstances where the the contractors entered into in conjunction with some other transaction. So whether it be a debt instrument or a preferred stock issuance, um, but that warrant contract is considered legally detachable and separately exercisable. So when we think about legally detachable, you know, it, it's, it's more or less whether or not we could transfer that warrant to another party without having to transfer the associated other transaction. And, you know, in my example, the debt or the preferred stock issuance. Um, if you're able to legally transfer it separately, you know, that's generally an indicator that you've got a freestanding contract. Um, another thing to consider here is whether that, you know, a contract's rights can be exercised without impacting the other instruments themselves. So in the context of a warrant, right, there's an exercise price. So if exercising my warrant does not impact the related other transactions, so it doesn't impact the debt or the preferred stock issuance, that's also generally an indicator that the warrant is separately exercisable. And that's another sign that the, the warrant contract itself is freestanding. Okay, riddle me this, Batman. So let's okay. <laughs> say I determine that a warrant is a freestanding financial instrument. Now what? What's next? Yeah, so like we mentioned, the importance of, you know, first figuring out whether a warrant is freestanding or embedded is because freestanding instruments then have to go through assessing whether the guidance in ASC 480 applies. So Without getting into too much detail here, you know, ASC 480 is really um, guidance that's designed to identify three different types of instruments that fall under the scope of its guidance. And, you know, those types of instruments are classified as liabilities. And so these three types of instruments, you know, we've mentioned a, a couple of these in our discussion already. You know, one would be any mandatorily redeemable financial instruments. Um, also instruments that have an obligation to repurchase an issuer's equity shares by transferring assets um, or certain obligations to issue a variable number of shares. Um, you go through that assessment, figure out if your warrant contract, you know, falls into any of the, the guidance under 480. If you determine it doesn't meet any of those instrument types, then really the next step is to consider whether the warrant contract meets the definition of a derivative. Okay, so 
I think I got it, Adam. I think I got it, Julie. Lots of moving pieces here. I'm going to need you to put together a flow chart for me. I'm a visual <laughs> learner. Uh, that would be helpful. But so now we're going down this derivatives path. So how do you determine whether a warrant has even met that definition? And then question number two, is this any different from the criteria that would have been considered for other embedded features in debt and equity financing, maybe such as conversion features in a convertible debt or convertible preferred stock? Yeah, so applying the definition of a derivative is not any different. So it's the same whether you're evaluating a component that's embedded in a host instrument or a freestanding uh, financial instrument like a freestanding warrant. So, you know, ASC 815 is the guidance that you apply for derivatives. And, you know, it outlines essentially three characteristics that all have to be met in order to qualify as a derivative. So the first one is, um, does the contract have an underlying notional amount and a payment provision? And so when you think about a warrant, you know, this is usually pretty obvious and the answer is yes. Um, you, you know, your share price is the underlying, the specified number of shares that the warrant contract will settle for is the notional amount and the payment provision. Uh, the second characteristic here is, you know, is it little to no initial net investment required? Um, you know, when we take that criteria and apply it to a warrant contract, you know, generally that's met as well because a warrant usually requires no investment upfront, right? It's usually just issued on its own um, as a sweetener to investors or to issued in connection with other debt or equity financing. Um, and then that brings us to kind of the final, uh, you know, characteristic that must be met to qualify as a derivative. And that is around the concept of net settlement. So the contract can be net settled. So this is the one area that it probably does require um, a bit more judgment um, on whether or not the contract permits net settlement. And, you know, the reason I mentioned this is because, you know, all warrant contracts, you know, have potentially different settlement terms and conditions. You know, for example, some warrant contracts permit what is called a net share settlement, which is also known as a cashless exercise. Um, these contracts, you know, where they have this cashless exercise provision, it will meet the net settlement criteria, um, even if the shares that they ultimately deliver to the holder of that contract aren't readily convertible to cash. So a lot of times a warrant contract that ultimately settles into shares of a private company, um, usually that'll fail the ability to meet the definition of a derivative because private company shares can't be readily converted to cash because there's usually not an active market to go out there and buy them unlike a public company. Um, but if the contract itself allows for a cashless exercise, so instead of paying the exercise price in cash, um, you're basically going to get the net shares that you would from exercising that warrant contract. Um, that'll meet the net settlement criteria, even if those shares are um, of a private company itself. Okay, Adam, that's really helpful. And I think I'm starting to grasp all of this. Julie, kind of switching gears over to you. It sounds like private companies have a lot more to wrestle with when it comes to evaluating the derivative guidance. Uh, so let's assume that you met the requirements for warrant contracts to be a derivative, okay? So we've, we've met that. Uh, next step is, is the contract essentially accounted for as a derivative derivative then going forward? How does that work? Yep, so everyone's favorite 
answer to that is it depends. You actually need to take the analysis just a step further. So even if you determine that the warrant meets the definition of a derivative, you would then need to consider whether it qualifies for a derivative scope exception. So in particular, there's a scope exception to derivative accounting for contracts involving a reporting entity's own equity. So in order to qualify for that exception, the warrant contract must be considered indexed to the entity's own stock and also meet the additional requirements for equity classification. Uh, okay, okay. But let's break this down a little bit further for our listeners. Explain to me exactly how we would assess whether this instrument is indexed to its own stock. Yeah, so remember that we lightly touched on this earlier when talking about the various terms and provisions to keep an eye out for in these warrant contracts. You'll often hear this part of the derivative scope exception assessment referred to as the indexation guidance. Um, in order to meet that indexation guidance, you would have to look at a contract's contingent exercise provision if any, um, as well as uh, any of its settlement provisions. Okay, and that's helpful. But what specifically are we looking for in each of these to meet the indexation guidance? And are there any certain things that would cause a warrant contract to fail here? There are. Um, and let's start with the contingent exercise provisions. So these are acceptable if they relate to the issuer's own stock or operations. And we gave examples of these earlier. So let's say an exercise that was dependent on a change in control transaction. However, if that contingency is based on a market or index that is not related to the issuer's own stock or their own operations, it would fail indexation. So an example of this would be a warrant contract that could only be exercised based on certain changes in the stock market index. Um, the second part of that indexation guidance then relates to the settlement amount. So here, an issuer should assess whether the settlement amount is based on an exchange of a fixed number of shares or a fixed amount of consideration. If no, then the issuer would look at whether those adjustments to settlement are based on any variables that are inputs to the fair value of a fixed for fixed board or option contract on equity shares. Um, if adjustments to settlement are based on anything other and those acceptable inputs, it would fail indexation. Okay, I think we're back to square one again. I need to know, do I collect $200 when I pass go? Yes or no? I'm gonna uh, need to circle back with that flow chart from you guys. But let's assume that the warrant contract does meet the indexation guidance. Uh, you mentioned it must be classified as equity. So then the question begs itself, how do we determine whether it is classified as equity? Yeah, so a warrant contract must also meet the additional equity classification guidance to be classified as an equity instrument and not accounted for as a derivative liability. So at a high level, the question you have to ask here is, is there any way that the warrant issuer can be forced to settle the warrant in cash? If so, then the instrument is not considered equity classified and therefore would not qualify for the derivative scope exception. Um, instead, it would be classified as a derivative liability at fair value, and then um, it would be remeasured at fair value each reporting period until the contract was settled. Um, and here I do want to highlight that ASU 2020-06 introduced some changes to that additional equity guidance that you would walk through at this point. 
and that guidance is now effective for public companies starting in 2022. Yeah, I'm so glad, Julie, that you mentioned that. We actually just put out a podcast discussing the changes introduced by ASU 2020-06, including the changes to the equity classification guidance. So I encourage all of our listeners to circle back to that episode and listen in for more details. But I do have a question about our warrant accounting. You mentioned that certain private company warrant contracts may actually fail the initiative derivative guidance assessment because they cannot be net settled. So then the question is, how do you account for contracts that aren't derivatives? And would you still go through the indexation guidance? You would. Um, And even if you conclude that they are indexed to the reporting entity's own stock, you would then go on to evaluate what needs the classification guidance, uh, which is what we just talked about, right? Um, Otherwise, if the warrant doesn't meet the definition of a derivative and they're not indexed to the reporting entities and stock, then you can classify it as a liability or asset based on its position and then measure it at fair value. Okay. I'm glad that we got through all of that. There's obviously a lot to consider when simply trying to classify and account for warrants. Uh, But however, once that's complete, is the accounting relatively straightforward or are there still nuances and complexities that we need to consider? Yeah, I guess it depends who you ask, but generally it's, uh, you know, there are some additional things to consider. It kind of depends on the classification itself. So if a warrant is equity classified because it, you know, let's say it meets the indexation guidance and that additional equity classification guidance, you know, the accounting is basically you measure it at fair value um, when you issue it. And then subsequent changes to fair value are not required. So you kind of like set it and forget it unless you subsequently modify it down the road. Um, on the other hand, if a warrant is liability classified, then you kind of have some homework you got to keep doing. So each reporting period, you have to remeasure that warrant liability at fair value and record those changes in earnings um, each period until the warrant is settled. Yeah, that's great, Adam. We just spoke, though, at the beginning uh, of this podcast that warrants are often issued with other debt or equity instruments. So how does an issuer account for warrants issued in connection with a debt or equity instrument? And then part two, if I'm trying to measure and recognize my freestanding warrant contract, how are those proceeds allocated? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and like you know, I said earlier, like freestanding warrants are typically bundled with other things. So it's not uncommon to have to think through this bundled transaction um, and, and how you should account for that. But the first thing you want to keep in mind is that freestanding warrants that are issued in that bundled transaction, they are accounted for separately. And so the big question then becomes is how do you allocate the proceeds between the debt or equity instrument and the warrants? And the short answer to that is it depends on the classification of those warrants. So whether you classified it as a liability or whether you classified it as equity. So let's take equity first. So if you have warrants that are classified as equity, the proceeds from that, um, you know, that financing, that debt financing, let's say, um, are going to be allocated to the warrants on a relative fair value basis. So you basically take the fair value of your debt, the fair value of your warrants, you know, combine that. And then on a relative fair value basis, you would allocate your proceeds. On the other hand, if you've got warrants that were classified as liabilities, it's a little different approach. Um, In this case, you use more of what we call a residual approach. So you essentially 
figure out the fair value of your warrants and you record your warrants at those fair value. And then any of the remaining proceeds would then be allocated to your other instruments. So in my example, your, your debt instrument. Okay. Um, and really the rationale there is that, you know, between using a relative fair value basis for equity classified and then kind of this residual approach for liability is if you use the, the relative fair value basis for a liability classified warrant, you could end up recording a day one gain or loss. And so obviously that accounting doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, and so you'll, you'll want to use that residual approach for liability classified warrants. Okay. And so we've talked about now warrants with just debt, uh, warrants being issued with debt or preferred stock issuance. But talk to me a little bit about when companies enter into a line of credit and also issue warrants. Does the accounting for that process look the same? Is it different? And what would be some of the nuances there? Yeah, we, we also see this arrangement as well, um, where the the financing transaction, if you want to call it, is really just to provide a line of credit. But in doing so, you know, the company is willing to provide warrants to that lender. Um, but so in this circumstance, the, the accounting is different. You're not going to follow that relative fair value allocation or that um, residual approach allocation for the warrants. Uh, here, you have to think about kind of economically what the warrants are representing. And so the warrants themselves here are really viewed as compensation for um, an access fee or a commitment fee to that line of credit. So if you think about um, in a traditional line of credit, you know, you might pay a fee to, for the, your lender to provide that access to capital in the future. And normally you'd pay that in cash. Um, you know, absent paying it in cash, you may have a circumstance where instead you give that lender warrants. And so the rationale here is that the warrants you pay for um, as, as part of that access fee, it really represents a debt issuance cost, which is an asset. Um, and so what you'll do is you'll end up recording an asset for those warrants um, that would then subsequently get amortized over kind of the access period or kind of the, the life of that line of credit. Um, so that's different than what you would have when you um, issue warrants in a bundle transaction with, say, term debt. In that circumstance, you know, you know, depending on how it's classified, you'll allocate those proceeds, and then that allocation actually creates a, a discount on the debt. Okay, so we've covered a ton here over the last uh, 30 minutes or so, but Julie, Adam, is there anything else that we need to talk about that possibly we're missing and that would be helpful to not only myself, but our listeners to understand a little bit more about stock warrants? Anything we haven't talked about? Yeah, I guess I would just like caveat like debt and equity financing, including warrants, is a very can be a very complex area, um, particularly not just the semantics of the agreements and all the provisions, but you know, as we've sort of illustrated today in this conversation, even the accounting itself um, can be pretty complex. And, you know, it's not something that a lot of entities always deal with all the time, right? Unless you're just constantly raising capital and doing financing transactions, it may just be a one-off thing. So, you know, don't be afraid to for sure pull an outside help, um, you know, experts in the, in the field that understand this guidance, the accounting for it, et cetera, consultants, you know, shameless plug for, for Embark here as well. But 
Um, another thing I would mention is that, uh, you know, we, we talked a bit about a lot of like fair values and recording and measuring things um, related to warrants. And, and, and that's important to also keep in mind is that you are going to eventually have to figure out what the value is for any warrants that you ultimately issue. So whether you do that in-house or you need outside experts, it's another thing to just kind of keep um, at the forefront when you're trying to figure out the accounting here is that beyond just sorting through the gap accounting, you may also need outside experts to help you with valuing these things too. Well, it sounds like we've got our next podcast lined up and valuation should be on deck if they're not. Always <laughs> so, uh, love it. Adam, Julie, thank you so much for everything that you guys did today. I know that I have new have a new appreciation for some of the complexities around stock warrants and uh, the accounting and treatment for each of those for both public and private companies. Thank you for enlightening not only myself, but also our listeners. Uh, and we will go ahead and wrap things up here and look forward to talking to you on our next episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.